Hello, you're listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Policymakers talk a lot about exporting as if it was some amazing thing. And economists have helped to push that line. We know from the data that there's a lot to like about companies that export. They tend to be bigger, they pay higher wages, they do more research and development, and they innovate. And they also tend to be more productive. Productivity, how much stuff you can make given the inputs that you have, it's really, really important in economics. Productivity is where growth comes from. If workers, if your inputs are really unproductive, if they just can't make very much stuff, then it's going to be difficult to pay them very much. But one really big question that economists have really struggled with is what causes what? If you've got all these big and productive firms that are also exporting, is it the fact that they're exporting that makes them productive? Or is it just the fact that they're productive that makes them want to export? And this question really matters for government policymakers. They need to decide what incentives to try to target with their policies. This week, we have brought in an economic expert. Amit Kandalwal is the Jerome A. Chazen Professor of Global Business at Columbia Business School. Amit, welcome. Hi. Amit, we have you here to ask you about the details of some of your research. You have this fascinating study on exporting and randomized control trials with David Akin from MIT and Adam Osman from the University of Illinois. But before we get there, talk us through some of the basic ways that economists think productivity and trade are related. So I'm a trade economist that studies how trade barriers affect productivity. And broadly speaking, there's kind of two ways in which access to global markets affect the productivity of of companies in a country. One way that we think about this is through when a country opens up to international trade, they increase the amount of competition that companies face. This levels the playing field, and and some firms are going to benefit from this, and some are not going to be able to compete. The firms that benefit are going to grow and expand, and they're going to pull resources from the less productive firms. And so aggregate productivity, when uh, the productivity of, of all the companies that, that survive, is going to increase. So that is one way that these productivity improvements can happen on an industry-wide basis. Trade results in moving workers and equipment out of less productive firms and into the growing firms that are bigger and higher performing. But how about within companies themselves? Are there links between me exporting and things that I do within my company to improve its performance? We think that could be possible. So there's certainly evidence that suggests that when companies are able to access overseas markets, because the size of their market has now grown, companies are incentivized to invest in new types of technology and and to expand. And we think that that's going to make them more productive. And then we think that there's a third possible way that companies may actually become more productive when they participate in foreign markets, which is kind of subtle, but we think is important, which is that the very active exporting a product may actually trigger an improvement in the efficiency of companies. This is the learning by exporting channel. That's what this paper is trying to find out. You're trying to ask the question, do companies learn and become more efficient just through the act of exporting? But before we get to that, how have other economists tried to answer that question? Suppose I give you some data and and that data tells you how productive a company is and whether or not that company exports. So the very natural thing to do would just be to see, are the companies who export more productive than the companies are not? And in general, that is in fact what we find. But it's hard to conclude just from that correlation alone that it is the very fact of exporting that has made firms more productive. 
So the reason that we can't conclude that is that the firms that are exporting are just different in many possible different dimensions. So it's the same way that if I told you that I go on a, the Mediterranean diet, for example, I may be a healthier person, but it may also be the case that I'm also exercising a lot more and so forth. So we can't conclusively say that it's the diet that's caused me to be more healthy as opposed to some other factor. And so more sophisticated studies would try to look at, for instance, the timing in which firms decide to export and perhaps there's some movement in their productivity or some increase in their productivity around the time in which they start exporting. That seems like a sensible idea, but it could also be the case that once firms start to export products, they're also making many other changes inside their company, which could also be improving their productivity. They may be changing their management, they may be investing in new technology. Let's go to your paper. How do you approach this question? So what we decided to do was to use a tool that's often used by development economists and labor economists to try to answer this question. And the tool is called a randomized controlled trial. So the way that it works is that the goal was to try to find a set of companies where we could provide a link to a subset of those companies where that subset was chosen purely at random. And the idea is that because we've chosen some companies at random, the companies that are in this what I'll call treatment group are going to be on average identical to the set of companies that are in the control group. And so after some period of time, if we were able to generate these export links, we could simply compare differences in outcomes between the firms that are in the treatment group to the firms that are in the control group. This is conceptually how a drug trial would work in which you have a set of patients and half of them get a drug and you check after some amount of time whether the drug in fact works by comparing the average outcomes of the patients who get the drug versus the average outcome of the patients who don't get the drug. In this case, what you're going to do is you're going to treat some companies by giving them help with exporting, and you're going to compare those with the companies that didn't get help or didn't get the extra access effectively to exports, and you're going to see, are those companies that got the help more productive? Are they, are they going to benefit? And, and maybe this is going to be evidence of learning by exporting. Let's talk about the specifics. Tell us about the companies that you actually study. So in order to pull off a study like this, we needed to find a setting that had a couple of features. One feature was that we needed a large number of companies that were making more or less similar things. Ideally, we would want them to be making the exact same thing. And the reason is that because if they're all making the same thing, it becomes very easy to make comparisons between those who happen to get linked to the export markets and those who didn't. We chose to focus on handmade rugs, and we happened to find a cluster in the northern part of Egypt in a town called Foa. This town has historically had a large cluster of very small textile weavers dating back hundreds of years that make flat weave rugs off of wooden looms. But these are not rug makers that have done a lot of exporting before. That's correct. Most of them had never exported before. You said that it was important that they were selling roughly similar things. Can you talk about how you measured that? An important part of our study was actually to try to get a very good measure of the types of products that these companies make. The benefits of studying one very specific industry is that we can tailor the surveys that we design to capture all the small nuances that may exist between companies and how they produce their rugs. So for example, one of the things that we wanted to collect was when you make a rug, an important feature of the rug is the thread count. Another important feature of the rug is how many colors it has, the type of design it has, 
what kind of thread is being used to make the rug. So for example, silk thread is much more expensive than woolen thread, which is much more expensive than cotton thread. The product is rugs. They're being manufactured in Fawa, Egypt. How did you get them access to foreign markets? So we happened to find a non-government organization called Aid to Artisans, whose mission is essentially to take craft industries or to find craft industries across the globe and to try to find a path for those products to get into high-income markets, typically the United States or Europe. So the way that ATA works is that they go into a developing country and they try to find one middleman who can export on behalf of the small companies. They will typically sponsor the visit of a middleman to the United States for him or her to showcase products in a trade fair. So we went to one of these trade fairs in, in New York, the New York Gift Fair, where in the basements of the Javits Center, there was a large showroom for handmade products where buyers and sellers were exchanging information and, and, and making deals. Aid to Artisan used part of its space to advertise the rugs from the one intermediary that we found who was located in FOA. It took some time for this middleman to generate interest overseas from his rugs. It turns out that rugs coming from Egypt are slightly more expensive than rugs that come from India or Nepal. And so this market tends to be very price sensitive. And so after about a year, he was able to generate interest from buyers in the United States and Germany. And it's that interest that is effectively going to be the market access. You're going to match these buyers to the rug producers in Egypt who are going to get this export opportunity. So once the middleman had the orders, he now needed to produce the rugs for those orders. And that's where our sample comes into play. So what we asked the middleman to do was to only source the rugs from a particular subset of the sample. That was the group that got this access to the international market. The other set of rug producers in our samples did not receive such access. And then the idea is that you're going to compare how those two sets do. That's correct. So once they got the link, we established periodic surveys in which we tried to track all the possible changes that could be going on inside the companies for both the firms who got access to the markets and those who did not. We were also quite interested in capturing harder to measure attributes of the rugs. If you are going to spend $1,500 on a large rug, you want to make sure that that rug lays perfectly flat when it's laid on the floor or that the edges are perfectly straight. And because rugs, when they're handmade, it's not that easy to do that, that was something that we wanted to capture. We found a local expert who could measure the quality of, of rugs along 11 different dimensions for both the companies who got access to the export markets and those who did not. The idea is to work out whether this extra market access made the companies that got it more productive. So what do you find when you compare the ones that did get these extra orders to the ones that didn't? If you just wanted to look at their profitability, what we would find is that the companies that got access to the export markets are more profitable. Their profits went up about 20%. That's perhaps not so surprising. If a foreign buyer comes to Egypt and says, I'm willing to pay a lot for this drug, you know, your profits are going to go up. So that's profitability. But what about productivity. So it turns out that if you looked at the square meters of rugs that they could produce per hour, what we found was something that was a little surprising, which is that the companies who got linked to the export markets were actually producing far fewer rugs per hour than the companies that did not get those links. And so that was a little puzzling. And that's where the very detailed data that we collected on the types of rugs that they're producing comes into play. 
It turns out that when you adjust for the types of rugs that they're producing and for the quality of the rugs that they're making, the productivity of these companies as measured by their output per hour is in fact much higher. What that's basically saying is that the companies that got linked to the export markets were making fundamentally different rugs. Those rugs were of higher quality, they were more demanding, and it took longer to produce. I'm not sure I find this that surprising. So before the Egyptian rug makers were making rugs for an Egyptian population that probably was much poorer than the kinds of customers that this experiment gave some of these rug makers access to. Suddenly they get access to these fancy customers in America and Europe. It doesn't seem that surprising to me that they would shift their production towards more expensive, higher quality rugs. Why should I be surprised? That's right. So based on what I've told you so far, you shouldn't be surprised. It's it's as if Chad always knew how to make handmade rugs, and now suddenly I offer him twice as much money to make a slightly higher quality rug. He always knew how to make it, but before I turned up, it wasn't in his interest to do so. So clearly you were surprised by this. So what is it that you think that's going on here? Because we had randomized which companies would get access to the export markets, there shouldn't be any difference once we make an apples-to-apples comparison between those companies and those who did not get access to the markets. But in fact, we found that they were producing at much higher output per hour, and they also had rugs that were of far higher quality levels. So how did you check that these rugs made by the firms you treated with export market access were higher quality than the ones made by the other companies? So we brought all these companies into a quality lab, and we had them make an identical rug. This rug had a particular characteristic, which was that it was a rug made for the domestic market. Everyone knew how to make this rug. We had them make a very particular size at a very particular weight, and we were able to record exactly how long it took to make these rugs. We would also then have those rugs scored by our external quality assessor to see once they've made the rugs, how flat does it lie, how straight are the edges, Now, the advantage of doing this is that because everyone is making the exact same thing, if the companies that got linked to the foreign markets were not learning anything, then there should be no differences in the speed or the quality of these rugs relative to the companies that don't get the link because we had randomized from the very beginning. And what we find is that the companies that got access to the the export markets were making these rugs at far higher quality levels. The rugs were lying flat on the rug. They've got straighter corners. They hit the intended size. They hit the intended weight. And it didn't take them any longer to produce those rugs. Can you distinguish learning by exporting from learning by doing? Presumably, these export opportunities gave these companies more orders. They had more practice making rugs. But did it need to be in a different country? In anticipation that this may, in fact, what's going on, what we had built into the surveys was to try to track information flows that were going from the buyers in the foreign countries to the middleman who was sourcing the rugs, and then from the middleman down to the producers. And again, if, if we didn't think that there was any learning going on, we should see no information information's flowing down the value chain. But we find evidence of this. What we find is that the buyers are telling the middlemen how to make the rugs of higher quality. So for instance, we have evidence of the buyer emailing the middlemen saying that the rugs are being packed too tightly and that's causing them to become wavy or that the edges are starting to fray after a couple of months. And so that's evidence of the foreign buyers telling the middlemen about not only how to make higher quality, but also what higher quality to, to the buyer means. And then we also track information flows from the middleman down to the producer. And what we find is that the middleman is then going and teaching the producer of the rugs how to make higher quality rugs. 
And if we didn't find evidence of that, then I think you're right. We would say that perhaps these companies are better because they've just had a lot more experience making higher quality rugs. But in fact, we do find information that's flowing from buyers all the way down the value chain, which is kind of a, an important channel when we think about potential benefits of international trade to companies in, in developing countries. Do we know that it's learning by exporting rather than just learning by getting more buyers of a particular type? What about if a charity had gone in and given these rug makers extra access to fancy people in Cairo? We don't think that there's necessarily anything special about exporting. So essentially what we found is that these producers got linked to sophisticated buyers. And these sophisticated buyers demanded higher quality rugs to be of more consistent specifications. And there was some transfer of knowledge down to them. In principle, these buyers could have come from overseas. They could have come from five-star hotels in Cairo. And so it's possible that we could have generated the same results from linking these producers to five-star hotels in Cairo. But what we think that's unique about international trade is that in a country like Egypt, the scale of sophisticated buyers within the countries is going to be relatively small. So one thing that international trade is really doing for developing countries is it is exposing them to the best practices of sophisticated buyers in advanced markets. What should policymakers take away from all of this? So traditionally, we think about international trade in terms of changing tariff rates or quotas. That's all Chad thinks about. <laughs> that's, that's true. So how are things different here? Here, we were making it easier for foreign buyers to be matched with producers in a, in a developing country. And it turns out that some recent work has suggested that almost half of the trade barriers that companies face when they try to get their markets overseas may be these kinds of softer constraints that we don't typically focus on. And so if this is in fact true, then this suggests a very different type of policy intervention that doesn't focus solely on trade barriers like tariffs, but in fact focuses on trying to reduce the barriers for buyers and sellers to match. So these could be things like sponsoring visas for companies to go overseas, to promoting international trade fairs, to try to improving the reputation of their companies in a market. That's rugs. And I think that is all for Trade Talks. Huge thanks to Amit Kandalwal at Columbia Business School. We will make sure to tweet out all the research we mentioned in this episode. Thanks also to Colin Warren, our audio guy, for making the quality of our audio sound a lot less random. FYI, we've been recording this in the hallowed halls of Columbia Business School. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bound. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores. At trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to randomized trials, two sets of companies is better than one.